You're listening to SermonCast, the online preaching ministry of Hope Hull United Methodist Church. Be sure to visit us at hopehullumc.org slash sermons, where you can subscribe to future episodes of SermonCast and browse our archive of past messages. Thanks for tuning in. Let me begin with a question. How big is your imagination? may seem like a strange question to begin a sermon, but the reality is one of the things that we need most for God to do in each of us is to enlarge our imagination of who He is and what He wants to do in and through His people. We need God to amplify our vision of His grace and amplify, magnify what His grace can do in us and through us. We have a hard time imagining the magnitude of God's power and grace in our lives sometimes. We have a hard time imagining a God who can really deal with the dark places in our hearts. After all, they've been there so long, and if He could deal with it, wouldn't He have done it by now? We have a hard time imagining a God who can deal with the pain and the hurt that we've experienced in our lives. We have a hard time imagining a God who can work real transformation in each of us. A hard time imagining a God who can truly reproduce every aspect of His holy character in our bodies and do it consistently, comprehensively, and permanently. It's hard to imagine that, isn't it? Even though Scripture promises this is who God is, we have a hard time imagining a God who can really deal with our sin. Not just forgive it, but actually get rid of it. Can you imagine that? How big is your imagination? When Paul wrote 1 Thessalonians, he told them about God's desire to sanctify them. Sanctify is just that word that talks about the process of becoming holy. The striking thing about 1 Thessalonians 5, because Paul talks about God's desire to sanctify people, to transform them, to take out the darkness and fill them with light, to take out the sin and fill them with His perfect love. He talks about that all the time. The thing that's really striking about this passage isn't simply that he talks about God's desire to sanctify the Thessalonians. He says God desires to sanctify them. Did you catch it? Entirely. That's a scary word, isn't it? That there's no stone in our hearts that God desires to leave unturned. It says, may the God of peace, 1 Thessalonians 5, 23, may the God of peace sanctify you. Not halfway, not three-quarters of the way. Not, it's a process. It'll be going on for a long time. And don't expect to get to the end in this life. That's not what he says, is it? May the God of peace sanctify you, make you holy entirely. Through and through. Spirit, soul, and body. I think we need 
better imaginations. Because it's hard to imagine a God like that, even though that's what the Bible says God wants to do. To make it even more surprising, God doesn't leave it us to figure out how to do it. Did you catch what Paul said about who does the work? God Himself will sanctify you entirely. It's a gift of His grace. God promises to do the job as a work of His grace. So we need better imaginations. We need God to magnify our imaginations because we have a hard time getting our minds around the promise that we can be totally holy because grace is totally gift. That's the bottom line for Paul. The people of God can be transformed and made completely holy because grace is gift. Holiness is a work of grace that is gift. Now, before we get into what it means to be holy, I want to remind you that this is what it means to be in the Wesleyan Methodist family. In the middle of the 1700s, as John Wesley and the movement he led, the movement known as Methodist, which, if you don't know, was a criticism to begin with, and they just sort of adopted that negative term and made it their, the name of the movement, Methodists. The people called Methodists in the middle of the 1700s gathered once, many times, and one time they asked the question and said, you know, why is God doing this? We see that God's at work. Exciting things are happening. People are experiencing transformation. The Lord is at work. What's the point? What's the goal? What is God after? Why has He raised us up? And their answer was this. That God has raised up the people called Methodists in our day to spread scriptural holiness. That's a quote, those three words. Spread scriptural holiness. So maybe you've been wondering, why does this preacher talk about holiness so much? <laughs> Every week, really. It's not just a series of sermons here and another one over there. It's really the main point of every sermon, isn't it? Why is that? Not only because it's on every page of the Bible, but also because it's what it means to be a part of the Wesleyan Methodist family. At the end of the day, from the beginning of the movement up until now, at our best, we believe that God raised us up to spread the good news of His grace to transform our lives and make us holy. That's what it means to be a part of this movement. Why did Wesley believe this? Wesley believed it because he read the Bible. 
He read 1 Thessalonians. You may remember a few weeks ago when we read through 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. We came across 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3, where Paul said, This is God's will for you. Remember what he said? Your sanctification. So of all the questions, all the things in life, what is it that God wants to do? What's His will for you and His will for me? It's not different for all of us. It's the same for each of us. His will is our sanctification. And so it shouldn't surprise us as Paul is wrapping up the letter and re-emphasizing the most important things that he's covered, that he would pray for the Thessalonians. And Wesley saw this too. May the God of peace Himself sanctify you entirely. After all, that's His will for you. It's what He wants for you. It's His good plan. It's His good desire. You may say, what about this total thing? Are we really going to be serious? Like, do we really think that God can do all... To, we're talking about total holiness, entire sanctification. Wesley was committed to that language because he found, found it in the Bible. He understood, as we understand it, this could... This could be tough for some of us. This could be a struggle for some of us. And people would push back and say, you know, Mr. Wesley, do we really need to, do we really need to hold on to that kind of language? Isn't that a little bit off-putting? Aren't we worried that maybe people would hear that and feel like this is an uphill battle, we can never make it? And people do feel that way sometimes. Because we know our, so we've, our experience tells us something different. <laughs> our experience says you'll never get free from this. The question is, do we believe our experience or do we believe God's promise and what if God's promise can transform our experience and Wesley said no 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 I'm gonna stake my claim on the Bible I'm gonna stake my movement on the Bible I'm gonna stake everything on the Bible and the Bible says God desires to deal with it all the way totally the God of grace Himself sanctify you entirely through and through. So what does that look like? What does it mean? Well, a lot of times when we hear the language of holiness, we start thinking about the rules, don't we? There's a lot of stuff you've got to do if you're going to be a good Christian. And if that's our tendency, we really need Jesus to draw us in a different direction. Because all through this passage that comes to its climax with this prayer for entire sanctification, all through the passage, Paul's focus isn't on the list of regulations. His focus is on building a community that's characterized by self-giving other-oriented love. I mean, take a listen one more time. Verse 12, We appeal to you, brothers and sisters, to respect those who labor among you. He's probably talking about the pastor, so it feels a little self-serving to actually read that to you. But it's in the Bible, so we'll go with it, right? The leaders of the church, clergy, laity, there are people who are at work day in and day out among you to organize and strategize the mission. 
There's this other-oriented love that Paul's calling for, isn't it? Esteem them highly in love. Notice the word love. Many of you may not know this, but there are a lot of folks who are not on staff and who are not ordained who are up here at work almost every day. <laughs> and you should be grateful for them because they do really good work and they make all of our other jobs very much, much more easily. Esteem them highly in love because of their work. God has set certain people apart to be completely devoted to the mission of the church. And we should all be grateful for that. But notice the point here. He's getting ready to talk about entire sanctification, and he starts with love. Esteem them in love. Offer respect. Take the focus off of self and put it on the concerns of the other. He doesn't say, here's a list of regulations of what it looks like to be a good Christian and how you dress and how you spend your time and where you go and those kinds of things. I know, what is it? Don't drink, don't smoke, and like <laughs> it's not that sort of attitude that Paul takes. It's love and esteem one another for the work of the Lord. Paul wants to talk about holiness again and again and again. He starts with love. Be at peace among yourselves. There's that word again, peace. Because if the God of peace is working in you to make you holy, then it's going to manifest in what? Peace. You won't be striving in conflict, will you? Particularly about stupid things. Things that are a distraction from the mission. Things that are a distraction from the gospel. Be at peace among yourselves. We urge you, beloved, verse 14, admonish the idlers, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with all of them. Again and again and again. Right? When you hear, because it's easy to get frustrated at the idlers, isn't it? <laughs> you know, there are, you know, the, the old rule is, uh, in church, 80% of the people, or 20% of the people do 80% of the work. And if you're in that 20%, it's easy to get frustrated at the 80%, maybe. And Paul's answer isn't, conflict, his answer is admonish, maybe, hey, let me invite you to do this with me, come on. And patience. And patience is an expression of what? Love. And patience is one way to keep the what? Peace. So again, there's this, I'm going to take my focus off of myself, because if my focus were on myself, I would be impatient, and turn it toward the other, and maybe there are people who aren't as bought into the mission as I am, as we are. But instead of losing my patience, I'm going to say, hey, you know what? I'm going to be a greeter for the Science and Faith Conference this week. Why don't you come along and stand beside me and help out? <laughs> and then all of a sudden, the leaders are inviting people to take another step in serving the church in the mission in Jesus. And the focus isn't on, I can't believe they're not as committed as some of us are. Which is a temptation that comes along, believe it or not. And the focus is on, 
how do we help people take the next step on the path of following Jesus? The next step being set apart for the work of God. And set apart is just another way to talk about sanctification and holiness. But all the way through this, all the way through, right? whether he's talking about respect for leaders, encouraging the faint-hearted, admonishing the idlers, helping the weak, all the way through, it's love, patience, respect. Not focused on me and my agenda, focused on the other and the church. And all of this is paving the way for this prayer that comes at the climax of this passage, the God of peace himself sanctify you entirely. For Paul, the question is not, how many rules do I have to keep? The question is, how much of Jesus' love is abounding in my heart? Let me say that again. For Paul, when it comes to holiness and sanctification, the question is not, how many rules do I have to keep? The question is, how much of Jesus' love is filling and abounding in my heart? Because we are trained, friends, from childhood, that following Jesus is primarily about keeping the rules. It shows up in children's sermons a lot, doesn't it? Here's what we want you to do. <laughs> One of the reasons I mention that is because I want you to hear when the kids come up, how we try to fill that with grace. Yes, Jesus wants us to behave in a certain way. He wants us to be holy. He wants our character to be transformed, our actions to be different. But it is grounded in the power of the gospel. We start out as Jesus' enemies. And enemies can't obey Jesus. They don't want to. They are neither able nor willing but Jesus, with His perfect love, demonstrated in His cross, comes to us again and again and again with grace upon grace upon grace. And where our sin abounds, His grace superabounds. And that grace transforms us. That grace sets us free. That grace enables us to surrender, doesn't it? The first time, the second time, the third time, the 100th time, so that He can manifest His life and love in, our, in us. And if He's doing that, guess what? The rules will take care of themselves. <laughs> We're not going to be in rebellion against Jesus if His love is abounding in our hearts, are we? If Jesus' love is abounding in us, our behavior, our morality, our ethics will take care of themselves. But if we start over there, if we start with the law and not with the grace, well, we'll never get to the grace. For Paul, this is about Jesus' love filling His people so that they're 
attention is turned away from the self. Me, my privileges, my agenda, my way, my preferences, and toward the other. Whether it's the leaders or the uninvolved, or minimally involved. How do we work together to cultivate a community marked by that sort of character? That's what the Lord Jesus wants. It's what Paul wants. You say, well, what about the Ten Commandments? The Bible's full of rules, isn't it? There's laws, there's expectations, and yes, there are. But you take those Ten Commandments, and if you divide them up and take a look at them one by one, they're really about loving God and loving neighbor, aren't they? One through four. Love God. Don't worship other gods. Don't take the Lord's name in vain. Keep the Sabbath. Right? Love God. The whole thing is framed with love. And then in five, it slides into things like don't murder and honor your parents and don't covet and don't take things that don't belong to you and don't say things that aren't true. And, and those are expressions of love for the people you're in relationship with. And so the whole thing, this is why Jesus said all the law and the prophets can be boiled down to these two things. Love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. Throughout Scripture, Old Testament, New Testament, Jesus, Paul, Moses, God's desire is a people who are marked by His holy love. And when that comes to bear in the community of believers, the sky's the limit on what Jesus can do. People's lives can be restored. Reconciliation, forgiveness, peace. Mission, evangelism, discipleship. All of these things, the sky is the limit. And we need Jesus to smarten up our imaginations about what He wants to do among us. Jesus didn't die on the cross just to get us together once or twice a week to sing some songs and listen to a guy talk for half an hour or so. He gave His life and died so that a community could be created where holy love abounds because it's holy love that drove him to the cross in the first place. His character, the character that leads him to take up his cross and deny himself is designed, not designed, his character is, he desires that to be displayed in his church. That's what he wants. That's what he's after. And sin becomes a problem when we stop surrendering ourselves to His love. That's how we've got to think about sin. Sin is not primarily about breaking the rules. It's about not loving Jesus. <laughs> because I've got to stop loving Jesus to start sinning against Him. So I wonder if we're in that moment where a decision has to be made and temptation is before us. Am I going to love Jesus in this moment or not? 
I wonder how it would affect our families if we framed it that way with our kids. Because it's easy to just focus on the rules at home. What if we frame it in, you know, you've got a choice to make, you've made a choice, you've got more choices to make. Are we going to choose to love Jesus or not? Does that reframe the way we think about what he wants to do in our lives? And does it help us begin to imagine a more comprehensive work? A more substantial, transformative experience? We can be totally holy, holy through and through, because grace is totally gift. We use the word total because the Bible uses the word entire. And then he kind of explains that in the next part of the sentence. May your spirit, soul, and body be kept sound and blameless. Not when Jesus comes, but in preparation at His coming. So when He shows up, this is what you're like. This isn't something He's going to do to finish the job. This is how He wants people to, to, to be formed for His coming. Let me read it again, verse 23. May the God of peace Himself sanctify you entirely, and may your spirit, soul, and body be kept sound and blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. For Paul, no part of our life and experience is left out of this. Now when Paul says spirit, soul, and body, he's not kind of drawing a, a map of the human it's not like the kind of a chart from a medical textbook. Well, this part's your spirit, and this part's your soul, and that part's your body. He's talking about your whole experience, your whole self. The work of God to transform you, to make you holy, to sanctify you, runs through every aspect of your experience, your spiritual experience, your psychology, your mind, your will, your emotions, and your body. There is no part of your human being that Jesus doesn't want to transform. Which is good because there's no part of our human being that isn't touched by sin. <laughs> That's something that had to be reclaimed about 500 years ago. The Protestant Reformation gave us this doctrine called total depravity. I don't know if you've read up on that one or not lately. But it simply means that every aspect of our humanity, whether it's our mind, our will, our emotions, our rationality, our bodies, our soul, whatever, is damaged by sin. They had to come up with that because several hundred years before that, there were some theologians who were saying sin touches everything but our rationality. We can think our way through these things, and that's one of the ways God reveals himself. And so the reformers came along and said, let's remember, folks, even our thinking is messed up. <laughs> yeah, maybe, maybe, maybe even more so, right? We see through a glass darkly. 
Our minds are not whole apart from Christ. And so Paul wants to say, listen, everything that sin touches, Jesus wants to touch with His grace. Whether it's part of your spirituality, whether it's part of your psyche and your will and your emotions and the complex things that make up your mind, whether it's your body, Jesus wants to touch it, all of it. May He do so through and through. That's Paul's prayer. That is Paul's prayer. The thing that's really striking, I mean, that's striking, sanctify you entirely. That, ca- that catches my attention. But even more so, perhaps, is the next part. Verse 24, the one who calls you is faithful, and he will do this. Now, if we'd been paying attention, we'd know that it's already the work of God in our lives, right? Because Paul doesn't say, I hope you'll sanctify yourself entirely, does he? It's a good thing he didn't say that, because that would not, like, (laughs) that would be a non-starter, wouldn't it? What does he say? May the God of peace sanctify. God gets the verb. This is God's work. This is part of His energy in your life. This is part of His grace. May the God of peace do this to you. Do what? Sanctify you. How much? Entirely. Who gets the verbs? God gets the verbs. It's His gift. It's a work of grace. Just like forgiveness. Just like justification. Right? When God pronounces His, the justified verdict, your sins are forgiven, I'm finding in your favor... We, we, we're, we're, we're good at thinking, hey, that's God's grace. Forgiveness is grace. I can't forgive myself, obviously. God's got to do that. And then we shift into, now it's time to be holy, so I've got to get to work. Right? And Paul says, if that's the way you come at it, expect to be disappointed. Don't think God will forgive me so I can make myself holy. For Paul, the whole thing is God's grace. Forgiveness, reconciliation, justification, new birth, all the conversion stuff, grace. Transformation, holiness, renewal, sanctification, all of the growth stuff, grace. God Himself. And in case we missed it, He throws in verse 24, the one who calls you, God, is faithful and He will do it. So there are times in our lives where we have to say, you know what, God? (laughs) Struggling here, and you said you would do it, so do it. Now here's the thing. God does not coerce. God does not coerce us into holiness. We talked about surrender a little while ago. We don't need to think of surrender as something we do to make ourselves holy. We do need to think of it as, Jesus, I'm not going to fight your sanctifying work anymore. I'm going to surrender. I'm going to lay down. This is the faith part. God justifies us on the condition of faith. He sanctifies us when we say, I'm going to trust you enough not to go to war against you anymore. I trust you. I believe. 
do what you do. All of salvation is grace. None of it stems from us. So the things he wants to do to transform our experience in our lives and our relationships and our church is grace. But grace always comes on the condition of faith, trust, surrender. Because God doesn't coerce. It's helpful for me to think about a gift, a birthday gift or a Christmas gift. Let's say it's your birthday. It's an illustration I like to use with some frequency because I find it very helpful. And let's say I give you a gift and I worked to earn the money and gave the time to go out and shop or at least get on Amazon and look through it and have it sent directly to you. But when it shows up, if you just sort of take it and set it on the table and never open it, then do you experience the benefits of the gift? The joy. Now you have to do something. You have to actually open it and receive it, don't you? Now if you were to say, because you've opened and received it, wow, I sure have done a great job earning this or deserving this or what a swell guy I am to get this gift we would all think you're a scoundrel right and we'd say no someone has given this to you because they're expressing kindness and grace and love don't think that you've somehow merit or deserve it and it depends on you obviously it doesn't depend on you you're just sitting on your couch and it showed up one day but the condition of enjoying the blessings of the gift is reception and salvation comes to us as a gift and the condition of enjoying the gift is reception and the word for reception is faith whether it's forgiveness or transformation God wants to do the work. But to receive it, we must surrender to Him. And surrendering is not one of those things, well, look how well I did that. <laughs> that would be ridiculous. Grace is always gift. But it has to be received, doesn't it? Because God doesn't overcome our resistance. That would be slavery. And what he wants is freedom. So when it comes to holiness, it's not about trying harder to be good for God. It is about surrendering to what God wants to do through his spirit in our lives. And friends, this is what Jesus came to do. This is what Jesus came to do. Jesus did not come to forgive us so that we can keep on living ruled by those things that we needed forgiving for. He came and died to forgive and cleanse us so that we can be free from those things. Completely. 
comprehensively, permanently. This is why Jesus came. He came to set us free so that we can be holy. So that His character, His other-oriented love, His compassion, His concern for the weak, His love for others, so that all of that can be manifest in our bodies. Not 50%, not 75%, 100%. So the question is, how big is your imagination? Can you imagine what it would be like to have Jesus in control 100% all the time? Because that's what he came to do. You've been listening to SermonCast, the online preaching ministry of Hope Hole United Methodist Church. If you enjoyed this message, consider sharing it with a few friends. Remember to visit us at hopeholeumc.org slash sermons and subscribe to get notified when new content is posted. Thanks for listening.